0: Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. It occurs to me that uh, it is just as important how God superintends the receiving of the sermon as superintends the preparing and the speaking of the sermon. So I want to encourage to receive this word because it doesn't just come from me. In faith, what we believe is each message also comes from the Spirit of God. I want to start with the trivia question. And if you guess it right, you get a prize. Prize will be my awe and admiration. <clears throat> what do you think is the oldest writing contained in the Bible? What's the oldest book in the whole Bible? Anyone know? Job, yes. Linus Park, our drummer and Bible scholar. The book of Job is the oldest writing in scripture. And most people would know because it's smack in the middle and you'd expect the earliest writings to be near the front. Even though Genesis begins with the beginning, it's actually Job that is the most ancient of the writings. It's almost 4,000 years old. It was written likely in the era of the patriarchs. And it was preserved and handed down to us as a very ancient text that still speaks so relevantly to us today. If you ever have a chance to read the book of Job, you ought to read it because it's incredible how this 4,000-year-old document sounds like it could have been written today. It contains so many powerful things that explain or reveal the nature of God, the nature of being a human being, and the nature of this difficult, broken, imperfect life in this world that we live in, some of the tensions and the questions and the doubts that are raised by the trials of life, Job covers all of them. Some scholars believe that Job is a historical, factual document. It tells the story of a real man named Job. Others believe that it is allegorical, that it's a drama meant to depict or create a moral story from which we learn a timeless truth. Arguments could be made in favor of both of those choices, but it doesn't seem to matter whether you take it as historical or allegorical because the truths that this book contains are important enough that God preserved it and handed it down to us over 4,000 years because it's meant to speak to each of us. We cannot be dogmatic about whether Job was a real man or Job was a figure, but what we do know is many people who are like Job have lived in this world Some of them are sitting in this room. And there are many people who also are are represented by Job's wife and Job's friends. This story, especially in the first couple chapters, is such a clear depiction of the way that our enemy, the enemy of God, works against us. When we've been talking about spiritual battle lately, spiritual battle is illustrated perfectly in this narrative. In the story of Job's life, what we see is literally a conversation between God and Satan. And I don't know if you've ever seen that movie Trading Spaces, where two powerful men decide to play a social experiment with another man's life. They're basically playing God. And it's so similar to this story where God and Satan are discussing this dude who's just minding his own business somewhere out uh, in the land of ooze. And everything that happens to him is a result of that conversation. His life is being tested and measured and put through the crucible so that what comes out would reveal something glorious about God and about the people who follow and have a relationship with God. Now, in in the beginning of this narrative, we are introduced to Job, and then shortly after, we're zoomed out to another setting in the throne room of God where he is holding court with a group of angels. And in comes Satan into this room, which is a very interesting piece of that, because you would not think that Satan and God hang out very much together. But Satan walks in the room, he goes, what are you guys doing? And then God asks Satan, where were you? Where are you coming from? And his answer is so interesting. He says, I'm coming from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. And I'm comforted by that phrase, because it reminds me that Satan is not omnipresent and infinite like God is. When I was a kid, I used to think that Satan was everywhere, constantly following little Dave Lee around wherever I went, tempting me or messing me up. And it's helpful to remember that he is a finite being. He is not God's equal and opposite. He's not everywhere all at once. He has to roam and walk to and fro. He has minions. He has those agents who work under him. But he is not like God at all. He is limited, more powerful than us, but far less powerful than God. And he runs around the world vigilantly looking for places to mess up the work of God. That's his whole job description is wherever God is at work, he is going to try to mess it up because he is bitter and spiteful and jealous of all that we have in Christ, which will never be accessible to him. And as God sees Satan walk in the room, he says, oh, hey, Satan, listen, In all your roaming, did you ever come across a guy named Job? Because he's one of my favorites. He is exemplary. This is a guy who I wish every person in the world would be like. He is so deeply committed to me and to righteousness as I define it. Everything he does is the way people are supposed to act. And so I've blessed him and he has blessed me. Do you know this guy? And as he's gushing, what you hear is the voice of a proud father who is so happy with one of his children. He's like, oh man, that kid, oh Lord, that kid is such a good kid. I am so delighting in him. I'm so proud in her. This is the kind of kid all kids should be like. And as Satan hears this, he can't stand it. He's repulsed by God's gushing over the the confidence that he has in Job. And he then offers excuse me, his cynical theory on why Job is such a good guy. And Satan responds to God this way. He says, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. Here is the beginning of Satan's cynical theory. His theory is that the only reason that Job is a good guy is because God has given Job a good life. He has given him the two things which every human being craves the most at the core. He has given him a hedge of protection. That's something we all desire, to be safe, to be well. We're all looking for a hedge of protection around us, and that he's also blessed him, which is biblical language, for provision. These are the two things we chase with all our might, protection and provision. Isn't that what every human endeavor ultimately is chasing is to be safe and to be well provided for, to have much and to not lose it, to know that what I have is a lot and that what I have cannot easily be lost, it will be mine through all thick and thin. This is the drive that motivates all of human life. And God has given Job more than his share of both of these things. Everything Job touches turns to gold, and nothing Job has rots. It doesn't break. Everything is good. He's always protected. And Satan's theory is, why would such a man not be a good guy? It's not you he is responding to God. It's all the good things you've given that he's responding to. Now, to be honest, Satan's theory is not that far-fetched, is it? Doesn't that describe most human beings? Can can we just be honest? The super spiritual, like, oh, that's messed up. Come on, how do you act? How do I act? What drives so much of our favorable response to God? So much, I mean, it's interesting how I see in America, how many churches that are very large are filled with comfortable middle-class people and I'm wondering for all of us how would our faith be sustained if the things that we have were lost the things that matter most to us what if we suddenly felt like God had removed his hedge of protection and we were exposed out there on our own no one had our backs we're, it's us against the world and the world is cruel and no one is covering our rear guard See, we look at at Job and this conversation between Satan and God, and we think, well, people should just respond to God and not for the good things God gives. But Job is actually an extraordinary person. But Satan's theory describes the majority of the human race. We respond so much more to the good things God provides than to the good God himself. I wonder if... That conversation in Heaven's Throne Room about Dave Lee, how that conversation would go. Oh, you think Dave's such a good guy? Well, let me take away. And God's like, ooh, that's a (laughs) toss-up. We'll see how it goes. It's like watching every Bears game. At the start, you're like, come on. And you're like, I don't know. I'm, I'm not confident, but I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful. Please cross my fingers. I wonder if God feels that way about us. If we were to lose all the protection and all the provision which we take for granted so many days, where would our faith be on the other side of that? I want us to be careful not to judge the characters of the story too harshly because they represent the majority of the human story. Then Satan begins to build on his theory and says, let me make a proposal, God. Now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then. Everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This morning's message is entitled, Our Enemy, the Destroyer, because here today what we see is a picture of Satan who loves to destroy things. There is a strange impulse in some people when they see a beautiful, clean, organized thing that they have a fantasy about breaking it, about destroying it. It's weird. You see that sometimes in movies. I don't understand. When I see freshly fallen snow, I can't even stand to step on it. But some people just love to mess it up. And what we're learning is somewhere at the heart of Satan is this desire, this delight in destroying the things God calls good. Satan is the destroyer of families and friendships, and churches, and neighborhoods, workplaces, dreams, careers, even physical bodies. Everything which God created and he called good, Satan hates. And one of his central activities is the destruction of all the things that God treasures and calls good. We learned in the past weeks that he also attacks our spirits by accusing us, by shaking our confidence in the standing we have through Christ. He attacks our minds through well-crafted deceit. He is a very good liar, and his lies are very believable. He seduces us through lies by attacking our mind. But today we'll see that he doesn't restrict himself to the abstract parts of us. He attacks our minds, he attacks our hearts and our spirits, but he also attacks our physical lives. Satan's theory is that if Job loses all that he has, then God will lose Job. That's his theory. It's the same thing you might say to a very rich man who says, you think that woman's in love with you? If you're broke, she's gone. I, keep, I, I kept hearing these memes like, like people would show a, a photo of Jay-Z and go, if he didn't have Jay-Z money, would Beyonce be with him? It's a similar question. If God turned off the spigot of blessing. How many of his people would stick around? How many of us would stick around if God stopped pouring in all the good things that he's pouring in? And so Satan's theory is being tested in the life of one man. God authorizes him within limits to wreak havoc on everything that that Job holds in his hand, everything he possesses that he treasures, as long as Satan does not touch the man himself. And so Satan goes to work. And like every delinquent kid, he's given limits, and he stretches those limits as far as he can. He doesn't just mess a little bit with Job. He devastates Job. He guts his life almost completely. When you think about what he has, it's considerable. By every standard of ancient wealth, for some reason, guys, this is not working. If you could advance for me. By every standard of ancient wealth, Job was a very, very rich man. In the ancient world, children were a particular mark of prosperity and blessing. And because it was the ancient world, I'm certainly not defending this, but they prized boys over girls, sons over daughters. And so if this is allegory, it's a very intentional numbering because the ratio is seven sons and three daughters. Daughters were good to have because they could be married away in in alliances to strengthen your family, and sons could carry on your family name and your family um, establishments, your businesses and your households. That was the worldview of the ancient world. And in that framework, he has twice more than twice as many sons as daughters. That ratio is very particular. What is more, these sons and daughters, you know, what if, you're, if you have a, a, are the parent of more than one child, isn't it true that your real hope is not that each one of your children will do okay, but that once they are all grown and left, Your children will actually like each other. Isn't that one of the greatest delights if you have more than one child, that when they move on their own, they choose to be together. I love when I found out that my kids have a kids chat that's totally doesn't include us, it's just the siblings chat. I'm sure that we're not included for a good reason. (laughs) That's okay, all right, that's okay, it's cool. But I just love the fact that sometimes they get together as adults without us. And it says, and by the way, these kids got together a lot, is that seven sons and three daughters, and his sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Ten birthdays is a lot of birthday parties in a year. And it seems like they got together all the time, and yes, in parentheses, they got together and ate a lot, drank a lot, caused a lot of trouble, and the dad had to come in and purify them spiritually but they liked to get together. And so the picture here is not just a man who has a large quantity of things, but he has a high quality of things. He doesn't just have a lot of kids, but he has a happy family, one where the kids love each other, get along, choose to be together. It's this idyllic picture of the ideal life. On top of that, another great measure of wealth was land, livestock, and servants that were under your household. And by that measure, all of those things he had. Uh, Can we look at verse 3 there? Yeah, there you go. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. Along with that is the presumption you have enough land and enough grazing lands to house all those, those animals, to raise them well. And so some scholars today have extrapolated that level of wealth to today's dollars and estimate that it's very likely Job had a nine-figure net worth. He was in the $100 million plus club. And it says here, that last sentence, he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Meaning in his entire region of the world, greatest is biblical language here for richest. It's a term of a measure of quantity. He had the most of any person in his entire geographic area. Then one day, Job gets a messenger who runs frantically onto his property and he delivers crushing news. He said, Sabean raiders have come and raided your property while your kids were, guess what they were doing? Having a birthday party and eating and getting drunk. And in the middle of that party, Sabean raiders came and they carried off all his oxen and all his donkeys and they killed all the servants that were watching those animals. And then as soon as this guy was finished talking while he was still speaking, another servant ran in and said, a terrible fire from heaven came down and killed all your sheep and all the servants who were watching them. And he wasn't finished speaking when yet another servant rushes in and he says, Chaldean raiders have come and they've taken all your camels and killed all the servants that were watching those camels. Each one says, and I'm the last one alive. I was the last person standing and I barely made it here to deliver this news. And if that were not enough, as that guy is just finishing up his message, a fourth messenger comes and says, this is the worst news of all. A mighty wind has come, and while your sons and daughters were parting together, it collapsed the house they were in and fell in on all of them, and they all died at the same party. Whether this is allegory or history, this is a terrible story. If you locate yourself in that story, this is the absolute worst day of a person's life. To lose everything you treasure, and then to lose all of your children in one time, in one incident. You know, when you read Job's response, you have to be careful not to think he's just a religious guy who brushed it off, denied his feelings. This broke him. This news would break anybody. And it's interesting that in all of his meddling with Job's life, Satan doesn't come out of the sky as this crazy red-winged, pitchfork-carrying demon and doesn't do these crazy supernatural things. What does he use to mess with Job's life? He uses foreign raiding parties. He uses natural elements. Later, he will even use disease. Satan has authority to use the forces and the powers of this physical world to mess with our lives. Not every time that you're in conflict will it be Satan at work, but sometimes the people who are messing with you are not people messing with you, it is your enemy messing with you, and that person just happens to be a convenient, available resource. I don't want you to go as far as to start demonizing others and go, you were possessed by Satan. They were being used by Satan because his target was you. And God permitted it because it was important for his purposes for you to see what response comes out of you when people or natural forces or illness begin to take from you the things that you treasure most. It's important for you to know that about yourself. And it's only in suffering that the ultimate truth of that begins to come out. None of us have the wealth of Job, I don't think. We'll find out at the Capitol campaign. Maybe some of your surprises, you're like, I was Sam Walton in secret. Please surprise us. But I'm guessing that none of us have the wealth of Job. None of us would say I'm the wealthiest person in Chicagoland. But you don't have to have that kind of wealth to identify with Job's story. Because all that you have is all that you have. All that I have is all that I have. It may be less than someone else, but everything I have is everything that I have. Whether it's big or small, if you take it from me, I have nothing left. I've never experienced that depth of loss. I've lost things, but I've never lost everything. How would you respond to a day like that? How would you respond to a day where everything that you treasured that, that formed your life was taken away from you at once? What do you think the enemy's intent was? What do you think Satan hoped that this terrible day would produce in Job? Because you remember his theory. His theory was Job is only faithful to God because God was generous to Job. And the minute the blessings stop, Job is gone. His theory was, God, if you stop treating him well, Job will will be nowhere to be found. He will run for the hills. That's exactly what Job, or what Satan expected would happen. Now, Job is not dishonest about his grief. It says in verse 20 to 22, at the end of all this terrible news, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, This is so powerful. Naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Those words are very intentionally chosen because it gives a window into what what Satan's hopes were, what his agenda was, and how Job, in his response, thwarted the plans of the enemy and honored God deeply through his suffering. It was okay for Job to express his deep grief. He went through the process of mourning. That's what tearing your, your, your clothing and, and putting on this robe, shaving your head. That's all signs of grieving the death of someone close to you. He went through all of it. If you read chapter 3 of Job, it is a raw, unfiltered lament over everything. In fact, it opens with him saying, I grieve, I regret the day I was ever born. At that moment, he hates his life. He wishes it had never even started. It's okay to be deeply honest about the terrible pain and the feelings that are evoked by loss and suffering. God does not want us to pretend it doesn't hurt. But that hurt can drive us to two different directions. One of them is towards God and the other is away. And Satan's theory is that every time we suffer, we will drive away from God. We will begin to doubt whether God is good or whether God is able to do anything. That's the two theories, right? Either God, you don't care about me or you you can't do anything for me. Maybe we would begin to blame God for abandoning us. Everyone else seems to be having a great life. I'm always getting the short end of the stick, God. It must be that you have it out for me. You have turned your back on me. So I am now returning the favor and I am turning my back on you. Maybe we would declare that God is unfair because I've been nothing but righteous and this is the way I get treated. And Job would have been wrong in saying that. If the life with God worked this way, that when you do good, you get good, if that's how it worked, Job would be totally justified in saying, I don't understand this at all, God. I've been nothing but righteous all my life, and look at the calamity that falls on me in one day. How does this system work? Nothing seems to make sense. Or maybe we would just say, I don't have the energy or the desire to do this religion thing anymore. I'm done praying. I'm done going to church. I'm done worshiping. This loss, this suffering has turned off completely my appetite for the things of God. That's his hope, that's his expectation, that's his theory that when we go through times of suffering and loss, that's exactly what will happen inside of us. And isn't that Satan's aim in every attack? whether he's lying or accusing or destroying, in every attack he levels against us, he only has one aim, and that is to drive a wedge between us and our Savior. That's his whole thing. His whole desire is to separate us from God and the people of God and to ultimately separate us from the faith that we have in him. The reason this story is preserved over 4,000 years is because God wants us to see in this one man's life an example of suffering that produced deep grieving and lament and yet also produced worship and the honest admission that I'm going to return from this life carrying the same things I had in my hand when I came. I came in with nothing. I will exit with nothing. You guys know we just moved and when you downsize this much, half the things you've spent your life accumulating are now in the hands of other people. My my treasured possessions accumulated at great expense over decades is all over Chicagoland. And that's what happens ultimately when you leave this world. Everything you amassed belongs to someone else. You don't take a single thing with you. Job, in his time of ultimate loss, was able with clarity to say, this is terrible, but at the end of everything, that's how I'm going to return to God. And so I'm going to keep praising God. Because he's taken away everything, but he hasn't taken away himself yet. And he refused to blame God for the suffering in his life. Satan's not satisfied. He's like, fine, I lost round one, but uh, you put some rules on me. You tied my hands. You told me I can mess with Job's stuff, but I cannot mess with Job. That's why he's still around. Well, what would you say if you came across Job right after he lost everything. You'd be speechless. What words can you offer of comfort to a man like that, right? I might say something like this. Hey, Job, I don't know what to say, man. It's terrible. But look, at least you have your health. Have you heard those words? At least you have your health, man. Live to fight another day. What you've lost, you can regain. At least you're breathing. Thank God for that. I I wouldn't say that to be trite about his suffering. Just what else can you say? So maybe you might say something like that under these circumstances. I recommend you don't do it. But that's probably what you might say is, hey, at least you have your health. And that Satan would agree with you. See, that's exactly it. We've taken away everything in his hand, but his hand is still healthy. God, let's see what happens if you take away the restrictions and let me mess with the man himself. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. And isn't that true? Would all of your assets be worth anything if you're about to die? If someone said, every penny you have and I'll extend your life, you'd give it. But he says, now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. And that's interesting the way Satan phrases it. He doesn't just want, want Job to be discouraged and to walk away from God. He wants Job to look at him to his face. Some people I know have done that as their parting act spiritually, have looked right into the face of God and said, You are a gross disappointment to me. And they've cursed him and washed their, their hands, wiped the dust off their feet, and never looked back. That's his desire. He doesn't just want to discourage us, hit pause on our subscription to God. He wants us to cancel in anger. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, given permission to now mess with Job's person, not just his property, not just his possessions. God still puts a limit. Don't kill the man. He's got to be living for us to see what happens. But anything short of death, you can do to his body. And again, like a delinquent child, Satan stretches those limits absolutely to the max. If he cannot kill Job, he will afflict Job to the extent that Job will pray for death, will wish he were dead or never born, and that's the ultimate result. I've seen people as adults who get shingles and they say, I never want to go through that again. Anyone ever had shingles? You know, I'm, why am I asking you to raise it? Like, that's... Uh, HIPAA's going to come and die. <laughs> you don't have to raise your hobbies, but if you've had it or know someone who's had it, it's just awful. I've never had it, but I've been around people who've had it, and it just looks like the worst thing. Just pain 24-7, your own clothing causes you pain. Job is afflicted with such terrible and painful sores that he's sitting down in ashes with pieces of broken shards of pottery, and he's just scraping at the wounds because even that pain is some relief compared to the soreness of those wounds. This is a man in terrible shape. He's just sitting in quiet. He refuses to curse God, and even in this medical affliction, he's sitting in a heap of ashes just trying to comfort himself in some way, find some measure of relief. Job's wife comes upon him, and she can hardly take in what she's seeing. She sees him fighting for his integrity before God in the midst of all his loss and suffering, and she just, it breaks her. She can't take it anymore. I've heard some terrible interpretations of this verse, but in this woman's defense, she has lost as much as Job has. She's not a nagging wife. She's not an irritant. She's a human being who has lost everything too. She's not in this story as a way of saying, look how bad nagging wives can be when you're struggling. I've heard that from the pulpit, terrible interpretation. This is a woman who has lost all her wealth, all her status, all her children, and these are not just children that she sired, she birthed them. They passed through her body into this world. Her grief is as great as Job's and maybe she doesn't have the medical affliction at this moment. But I don't think her words, are you still maintaining your integrity? Just curse God and die. It's her way of saying, be done with it already. Why are you hanging on like an idiot to this loyalty to God? What are you gaining from, what is there to worship Job? How can such a God be worthy of devotion How do you keep worshiping a protector who hasn't protected? How do you keep worshiping a provider who doesn't provide? What is the point of worshiping this God? We have worshiped him faithfully all our lives and in one day he took away everything from us. Why are you still holding on? And in this, if this is allegory, she represents the vast majority of the human spirit. This is the sanest response to suffering. It's the most logical, the most normal. Because that's the way the whole world that we know works. You act right, you get right. You play your cards, you get good results. This is unfairness at the most deep level. And none of it makes sense. This is the mystery to the unbelieving world, is why anyone of faith would continue to trust in God, worship God, be faithful to God, when he has stopped giving them all the things that they would seek God for. Because at the end of the day, most people turn to God for something, not because they're turning to God, but they turn to God for the things which God can provide. And if God breaks his side of that contract, there's no motivation left to play our end of it faithfully. I think it is in suffering that the great difference between belief in God and relationship with God are shown most clearly. It's in suffering that this is differentiated. Everyone believes in God at some level. And in fair weather, believing in God is enough to draw us to church, to draw us to have quiet times. But a relationship with God shines through when the normal contract is broken. When God appears to have stopped playing his part and we're left to continue playing ours, And the only way we can play it is if we trust him in the end. Right now, it looks like you've stopped writing my story, but I still believe you're holding the pen in your hand. If I just wait and I trust in you, you will finish the story. You will show yourself to be merciful and kind one way or the other. I will not bail. And this is what suffering tempts us to do. It tempts us to exit the story prematurely and not see how God intends to finish it. I understand the spirit of Job's wife very well. And I've had many people over 30 years at this church express those exact words, that exact sentiment out of their pain and loss. I don't understand what the point of this is. How is God good anymore when this is what my life is? Job stands as an example to us that it's possible still to acknowledge the goodness and trustworthiness and worthiness of God to be worshipped in the midst of all of our suffering and loss. Job says to her, you're talking like a foolish woman. This is not an insult. He's saying, "You're, you're using the world's logic and you're right. I look like a fool to everyone else. But in the eyes of God, that is the foolish thought. Should we accept only good things from God and call him God? Should we not also be willing, if he is truly God, to accept everything which he permits in our lives because he knows more than we do? He has purposes we cannot understand. And so often, he uses the hardest parts of our lives to produce the most refined gold out of us. Later, Job will even say that I emerged out of this terrible trial, I emerged as gold. His faith, his relationship with God was not just something that endured, it flourished, it became more refined as a process, uh, uh, as a result of this suffering. It is through hardship that some of the most important parts of our inner being are forged. How many of you guys would be interested in a story of a person who said, you know, ever since the day I was born, silver spoon in my mouth, nothing but good luck, everywhere I drive it's green lights, Uh, And that's my life, and I'm a good guy because I've had nothing but good times. And you're like, boring. When people ask you your story, and they say, tell me about you, what makes you you, how often is it the result of the trials and hardships you've survived that forge your deepest character, the things that are most fiercely owned by you? This is the core of me. This is who I really am. This is who I cling to. I know this is true of me because in hardship, it remained. All the fluff flies away when hard times come, but the core of who we are remains. And so Job says, this is not a good season for us. God is pouring out his bad luck bucket on our family. But I will not just receive good from God and not the bad. I will receive everything from God that he has because at the end of the day, The finish of this story is his to write, and I'm not going to bail early. 2,000 years later, James, the brother of Jesus, inspired by the story of this man, would write these words We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end. For the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. Suffering makes us want to bail on God. So often it is on the other side of suffering that God writes the best parts of our story. It is faith and perseverance through the suffering that thwarts the plans of the enemy and allows God to show us who he really is and who we really are. And when suffering causes us to turn our backs on God and flee, we miss the end of that story. That's the very best part. I'm not suggesting that every story ends happily here. But every story ends happily for those who are in Christ. Close this way because we have to have communion together. Job's friends hear about the news. They're deeply moved. They leave their houses to journey and comfort him. But when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then speechless, they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. I think one of the hardest parts of suffering is how alone it makes us feel. And even though you have friends who will journey from far away to sit with you, and that's comforting, isn't it, at some level? There's a limit to how much others can enter into your suffering, isn't there? Even if they're in your family or your small group, no one can actually enter the fullness of your grief and loss. That's what suffering does, is it isolates us. It reminds us that we stand alone in so many ways in this world. And yet the great tragedy is that in our suffering and feeling alone, we walk away from the only one who can actually enter into it in fullness with us. The only one who could actually understand what we feel like in the midst of losing everything. You can describe it to your best friend, but they will never really know. But there is one who does know, who does understand. This afternoon, as we close our worship, here's how we will respond to God's word, to God himself. We'll respond at the Lord's table. Jesus tells us to remember that the hope that we have, even on our worst day, was made possible because his body was broken, And his blood was shed for us. On the worst day of your life, the hope that you still can cling to was made possible because he understands what it is to be betrayed and broken, beaten down and attacked. To have his body and everything he treasures destroyed and taken. If ever we needed someone who understands, at the lord's table we remember the only one who really does and i want to encourage you as you come to the table to just take a moment to reflect god do i know you this way will i still cling to you if the provision and the protection are turned off for a season if you take from me everything i treasure will i still have you i've lost so me, can you stay with me in this moment, and let me know I'm not alone? These are the things I invite you to remember as you approach the table. I'm going to invite those who serve to come and get ready. And because it's cold season, we're going to ask you not to grab at the things on the plate, but just wait to be served, so that those with gloves, uh, this way we keep the, the colds from spreading. If you need a gluten-free option, that's available on this far end of the table. And we're gonna do Scottish style commune, which means as you feel ready, we would ask you to come forward and spend a moment at the table just preparing your heart. And then as the elements are served to you, take it at the table and then return to your seat to make space for another person. I'm gonna pray for us and I'm gonna invite you to respond to God at the Lord's table today. Jesus, you were attacked and like Job, you were attacked not because you'd done wrong, because God had a purpose in permitting it. And we thank you for the way that you endured your suffering and for the hope that makes possible for us. At this table, we come to you to sit with the only one who understands our own loss and suffering. Help us not to feel alone at this table, but remind us that you are with us and we are with one another. Pull us to yourself so that even in loss, we will not turn our backs on you, but we will turn towards you as our Savior and our hope. Meet us at this table now in the name of Jesus.